Hello, everyone. Hello. Um, thank you all for coming, uh, and welcome to our panel, uh, Food Policy, Ethics for Your Kitchen and Beyond. My name is Joe Mazur. Um, I am an assistant professor in philosophy and political science at the LSE, and I'll be moderating this lovely panel. Um, and uh, I just to give you a, a sense of the structure, we're going to have each of these wonderful speakers uh, give a talk, a talk for about 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, and then we will have a little bit discussion amongst ourselves for about uh, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and we'll make sure to leave uh, the last half hour or so uh, of this hour and a half panel uh, discussion for Q&A from the audience. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to our uh, first speaker. Um, this is Elena Ravia Lutecourt. Um, uh, Elena studied environmental science at the University of East Anglia and got her master's in environmental technology with a specialty in global environmental change and policy at Imperial College. She is our LLC's sustainability officer and she's been in that position for eight months. Before that, uh, she was uh, env an environmental officer and analyst in the Wildlife Crime Unit at the Metropolitan Police. And uh, Alina gives an annual lecture on soil and agricultural policy at Imperial College. So, Alina, please. Thank you. Hi, everybody. It's so nice to be here tonight. Um, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about tonight is actually going to be framing questions um, for yourselves in your everyday life and also for our speakers, too, that I think they will be able to address some of it. Um, when I talk about food policy and the issues that surround this, in my mind I see it as four elements that are affecting how we think about these policies. And I'm going to run through these and then sort of focus a little bit on the main factor that is closest to my heart or maybe I should even say my stomach. So my first point is around hunger. This is probably very obvious, but there are some many people out there that are hungry, something like one in nine, 800 million Figures vary, um, but what it means is that there is a large proportion of people that don't get enough food, and the food they get is often insufficient to meet their everyday needs and lifestyle choices. Um, at the end of this, what you get is people that also have a problem with health, which leads me to my second element, so hunger, health, and then health. And health relates very closely to food in my mind. We eat food that nourishes, and what we take in affects directly how our bodies respond to our environment, if we have enough energy. And we've just mentioned hunger, but if you're eating too much, you have the opposite extreme, developed countries. In fact, we have so many issues associated with what we eat, um, what we shouldn't be eating perhaps sometimes, uh, to give a case example, in the UK, we spend around nine billion a year on um, food-related health problems, which is quite high. To get, compare that even further, think about the recent government's plan. They've just invested over a billion and a little bit. Let's give that a moment. And so they've just invested over a billion to make sure that kids that go to state schools get one decent meal a day. So that's one billion, nine billion against the health problems. And to sum it all up, I'd say that we've sort of sacrificed the quality of our food to produce more quantity. 
And that leads me neatly into my third element, which is population growth. This is one that is mentioned frequently, but not, um, not perhaps as much as I'd like it to be mentioned. There were four and a, four and a little bit more billions of people on planet Earth when I was born. There are currently seven and a bit billion. And in 15 years' time, we'll have an extra billion on the planet. A billion doesn't really mean much. So I started thinking, what, what can I turn that into that would make it a bit more interesting? It means that every year of my lifetime, there were more people than in the whole of the UK on the planet. That's a lot of people to feed, especially when we're considering that the food we're getting is worse and that we need to produce more of it in a better way, in a more expensive way, perhaps. So my last factor and element is the environment and sustainability of our food. And I think all of the three previous have an impact on this side of things. There is enough food at the moment for everybody, great. But does everybody get it? And uh, when you think about that, okay, so we're going to produce, what, another extra billions worth people's worth of food? With, with what technology? With what process? How are we going to do it fast enough? Forget about climate change, you know, that, that's on the side. From my perspective, obviously, climate change is the everyday of what I do. Um, and the way I see it is that we started creating very huge vulnerabilities in the earliest steps of the food chain. One of the topics that I talk a lot about is around soil. And soil, for me, is the starting point for agriculture. If you don't have a land to put your seeds into, you're pretty much done. That's, that's the end of the line. Um, and when you think about the percentage of soils that are currently very close to big erosions um, that could be easily affected by small changes in climate. And you think about the fact that we are going to get more events, more extreme events, and these are going to happen more unexpectedly, perhaps. One of those events is what I consider a tipping point that would push a soil into disappearing, to be washed away, or to be just blown away. We see pictures of that quite daily. And the last little bit to add around the environmental side of things, I'd say, is um, where do people live? People live in cities now. So who's producing our food again? Sorry? The machines? So you've got those four big factors, and that that's kind of gives you a feel for when you're doing policy at a really large scale. Those are the four things that I think you need to juggle. But what does that mean when you go and shopping? What does that mean when... You're at home and you need to figure out what you're going to put on the plate. Um, you might be very lucky that you can afford to go to three, four shops twice a week. You know, your butchers, your fishmongers, drive down to the local, pick your own. Amazing. I don't have time for that. Who does? So you go to the supermarket and there you're confronted with, voila, labels. What do they all mean? And I find the labels quite interesting, and I'm that awkward person that stands in the Sainsbury's aisle thinking, oh, which one shall I get? Is, it, is, the, is the organic from New Zealand better than the local British beef? Or, of course, the answer for some people is don't eat meat. But um, for those that do want to do it, how can they weigh the pros and cons with these different labels? What do they mean? What does it all amount to? I can tell you a little bit of what we do at LSE. Uh, LSE tries to pick local seasonal items. If you do eat in our canteens, um, you may have noticed that. There's generally always a vegetarian option. We tried doing meat-free meat -free Mondays 
I'm afraid it didn't go down too well. Um, and we now do reduced meat Mondays. <laughs> yes. But it's, it's a work in progress, you know, reduced meat. And, you know, eventually you inch it down, inch it down. And I heard a wonderful news article quite recently about um, a fake burger that bleeds um, but is not made out of meat whatsoever. But it tastes like meat. It's actually spinach, I think. But we'll see. We don't have that yet, in case you were wondering. So that covers a lot about what we do around um, labelling. Um, there's a few other labels that get thrown out, uh, such as fair trade, which has nothing to do with the environment. I, just to let you know, that some people think that it's a sustainable label, but in fact it's, it's a very good label. It tells you that people are being paid good prices for what they're producing, but perhaps doesn't tell you much about how it's being produced. So you've got home after choosing all these labels, and then we overeat and we throw our food away. To give you an idea, I think last year uh, LSC threw away 250 tonnes of food. The UK threw away 7 million tonnes. It's roughly, what, they're saying, £60 a month that people throw away. How are we going to set policy when we can afford to just throw away our food? And one of the interesting facts around that is that that's what happens in the developed world, but in the developing country, actually the food is wasted before it makes it to the plate. Anything that makes it to the plate gets eaten, but it's before that where things start happening in a different order. And a lot of it is because they have pests, cue climate change, and um, lack of a refrigeration. So should we give everybody fridges? What would that do to the environment? Not that I'm saying that everybody shouldn't have access to refrigeration, but... There is an added dimension there to think about. And at the end of it all, I fear that we're on the verge of choosing between a very traditional approach where we produce more food sustainably, locally, organic, labels, or technological approaches with uh, no soil involved whatsoever. It's just a warehouse with um, nutrients being wafted onto the plants. Um, they might be on the top of a building. Um, I hear the walkie-talkie has a, the last floors of it are a public garden. Imagine that could be, you know, your next grow house. That did happen in the Met as well. We used to hear about, you know, the drug spots. So they can, you can grow plants in the most amazing of conditions. And uh, thinking of all this... What are the solutions in terms of policy? Where do I see it all going? I see a world where urban planning includes food inside cities, food production. It might be something that teenagers get stuck with doing as a coming-of-age job, you know, a couple of years in helping the community produce food before they move on to studying. Very difficult. Um, there's a lot around food education. There's, schools are doing a, a huge amount on telling people where things are coming from, where they're growing for, growing their own food. Um, I suspect that in a few years' time, this scenario that happened to me in my first year at university will now arise. It was my first year, I was in a hall, and I made a soup. And there were people there that had never seen a soup made from scratch. Somebody asked me where the flavour came from. <laughs> So there you have it. It's, it's an interesting world, but I'd like to leave you with a thought that there is a big gap at the moment in the amount of food produced and the amount of food that people are, being rece are receiving, and the population is going to grow up. And you might say, let's sacrifice 
the environment and the quality to produce food to feed everybody, because that's the right thing to do. But I can tell you that that's a short-term choice, that you won't have the resources to produce food for more people if you don't address the environmental issues first. Thank you. Thank you, Alina. Our, our next speaker is Duncan Williamson. Uh, Duncan is food policy manager at the World Wildlife Fund. Uh, he's also the global lead of sustainable diets at the World Wildlife Fund. He blogs at the World Wildlife Fund and also, at the, among other places, Live Well, uh, Life, and The Guardian. Um, and he, we should mention, studied philosophy, including some political philosophy, at, the, uh, at Southampton University. Yes. Yes, uh, thank you very much. It takes me back, yeah, studying philosophy at university. Um, yeah, thank you very much for having me. I'm very honoured to be here. I suppose some people might be thinking I'm going to talk about biodiversity. I come from WWF. Conservation is my first love. Um, I've got a thing for tree frogs. I think they're amazing. And that's what we do. We work on biodiversity. It's what we're there for. But since I started working on food, I've had to learn about nutrition. I've had to learn about health. I've had to learn about sociology. I've had to learn about economics. It's meant I've had to learn a lot of things I never thought I'd have to. So I'm not going to talk about biodiversity. As much as biodiversity, the single biggest threat to biodiversity on the planet, both land and oceanic, is food. I'm going to talk about two things. First is chickens. Um, Kind of biodiversity. Uh, the, and the second, then, is about consumption. Because that, to me and to us, is the single biggest problem and solution to the food system. But I do agree, the current food system is completely unsustainable. But chickens. I have, have to admit, I have chickens. I have four chickens. I have sherbet. I have dab. I have rhubarb. And I have custard. Rhubarb hates people, absolutely hates them. But these girls are amazing. They eat the waste food, except for the Brussels sprouts. They don't like them. They give eggs. They eat the slugs, the snails in my garden. They're brilliant. They're really entertaining. They all have different personalities, and chickens should be so central to, our, to everything that's good about the food system. But they are now a symbol to every single thing that's wrong with this food system. Everything. The single biggest grown crop on the planet is soy. The second is sugar, the third is palm. We don't need any of these three crops to eat. We don't need to add sugar to anything, we get it naturally. And soy, we don't need, we don't eat directly, about 5% of global soy goes into things like tofu. Soybeans, you go down to Pretamondi, you get your edamame beans, it's the soy. The rest is used to feed livestock. Chicken, pigs, <coughs> and dairy. It's, that, it's doing that so we can have cheap meat. So we can have cheap dairy. Forget the environmental costs. We're not, we don't care about them. Forget the trees being cut down. We're doing it so we can have cheap meat. And this is particularly of concern to chicken. At any one time on this planet, there are 20 billion chickens. 20 billion. Think about that. <clears throat> we heard 7 billion people, three times that amount of chickens. 
I'll tell you, if they rose up, we'd all be in trouble. (laughs) And that is a particular problem, because in the UK, we eat more chicken than we have ever eaten before. The average person eats chicken every day. We eat 400% more chicken per person today than we ate 50 years ago. And we don't eat the whole chicken. We like the breast, we like the legs, maybe the wings occasionally, but not the rest of it. And we're eating chicken every, every day. It's the so-called virtuous meat. You go into the supermarket, I guarantee, 80% of the ready meals, chicken. Sandwiches, most popular sandwiches at your canteen, chicken. When you go home, what's most you're going to eat tonight? Chicken. Count the amount of fried chicken restaurants you pass. It'll be a lot. And this has come about because everyone's been used to chicken being the virtuous meat. While we've been busy pointing the finger at beef and going, oh, beef is bad, these cows with their methane emissions, they're the problem, we've just been eating as much chicken as we can possibly get down us. But these chickens, if you look cumulatively, we're eating more chickens than we need. We eat more protein than we need. We're not a protein-deficient country. There's nobody in this room who is protein-deficient, not a single person. Yet people going around with celebrity diets going, I need to eat more protein. Oh, I better have some more protein. I need more protein. No. Try more vegetables. Um, But the the thing with chicken that we have to realise about on this is that these are often going to be intensively reared chickens. These chickens, an intensively reared chicken, can have up to 12 times the saturated fat as a free-range chicken that's running around my garden at the moment. Except one of them, who's greedy. Um, They're also probably going to be stuffed full of antibiotics. Stuffed full of them. To the fact that there's going to be a health crisis because of the overuse of antibiotics. And these chickens, I, we're not a welfare organisation, but if you go into a factory farm or watch a video on it, it's, it's disgusting what we're putting these animals through so we can have cheap meat. Cheap meat, just to save a little bit of money. Um, it's a chicken. It's a big thing. We're eating it every day. We have to start thinking about it. Rainforests are being cut down for it. There's water pollution. It's causing ill health. It's causing biodiversity loss. for chicken, the virtuous meat... Just as an aside, I could have started on sugar. Because in the 80s, the other great swindle that came was everyone decided fat was bad. Fat was evil. You shouldn't eat fat. Eat low fat. Don't eat fat. And now you look at everything that's low fat is high sugar. Since the 80s, an obesity crisis has hit the world. There could be a connection with sugar. Um, there's seven or eight types of sugar that are used. If you look at some of these so-called healthy foods, you look at it, you'll see so many types of sugar that are given different labels because we're eating sugar constantly. Breakfast cereal, it's full of sugar. Breakfast bars, like some of those breakfast bars, probably the second ingredient will be sugar. And the same thing's happened with sugar as happened with chicken. While we've been focusing on beef and fat, sugar and chicken have become ubiquitous. So what we eat is... Very odd. It's dominated by very, very, very few foods. Did you know 12 plants make up 80% of the plant species we eat? 12 plants, top three, palm, sugar, and soy. It's bonkers that that's what's happening. There are 30,000 edible plant species on the planet. Most people in England could not name 10 vegetables. So what are we doing about it? Why am I talking about this? Other than the fact that the single biggest environmental threat on the planet is food and agriculture. But we realise very quickly you can't just improve production systems. 
Production systems alone, let me take us so far to tackling climate change. And climate change is happening now. Harvests are failing now. We're seeing extreme weather now. We're seeing drought. We're seeing famine. We're seeing floods. Climate change is happening now, impacting on the food system. But production alone will not turn this round. One of the biggest contributors to climate change is agriculture. Both direct and indirect emissions equates 30% of global greenhouse gas emissions. It's the big one, and we're we're all focusing on energy, which we should. Transport, we should, but we can't forget the role of agriculture in this. But we found out if we just go on the production and go for production efficiencies, we're not going to solve the problem of an unsustainable food system. We have to look at technology, and we have to look at consumption. We have to look at every single part of the food chain. We have to look at every single tool if we want to do this and create healthy food. It's really important that we do all of that. And that's why we as an organisation work on consumption. No one likes being told what to eat. No one likes saying, oh, it's what you're eating is the problem. Your food choices daily are the problem. The problem that's coming from government, from businesses, from what you're being sold is the problem, what we're putting on our plates. But the simple fact is, in the developed world, we are over-consuming calories. We are over-consuming a limited variety of foods. We are over-consuming foods high in sugar, high in fat. We are over-consuming meat to a staggering proportion. It's mainly chicken, mainly pork. We are under-consuming plants, massively under-consuming plants. And this is a model that we're exporting to the rest of the world. You have countries in low-income countries where the rural communities are starving because they're malnourished and in urban communities you have obesity because they're malnourished because they're adopting high-calorie, low-nutrient diets that we're exporting to them. We also grow enough food to feed between 10 and 14 billion people. 10 and 14 billion people tomorrow. We could probably feed almost double the current world population on the current production systems, but we waste loads. We throw it away. We feed it to animals. We feed it to cars. We feed it for energy, because that's what we do. But what we did, we realised very quickly as well that we can't just tell people what to eat. We can't tell people, eat less meat, because no one likes being told what to do. And there's lots of complicated messages out there already. People aren't eating the right diets from the health messages, which are quite clear. But we discovered that the foods people are under-eating and over-eating... So you're not eating enough plants, we're not. Whole grain, carbo- whole grain carbohydrates, beans, vegetables, love vegetables. Um, not eating enough of any of those, for some reason we think they're boring. Um, that we, but we're overeating the sugars, the cakes, the chocolates. Chocolate used to be a treat, now you get it in Weetabix. Um, we're overeating chocolates, we're overeating meats. The only thing we kind of get right is dairy. But all these things we're overeating are causing huge disease burdens. They're causing massive problems to our lives, to our diets, to our health, to diabetes, to obesity. And what we found was that exactly the same things we're overeating that are causing the health problems are causing the environmental problems too. And what we also found was if everyone switched to the government's own healthy eating advice for all its faults, hundreds of faults, um, but if we all switched to the healthy eating advice, eat well plate, it would be a low-carbon diet. It would mean halving our meat consumption. It would mean doubling our vegetable consumption, which is not boring if you think about it. The great cuisines of the world, India, China, Malaysia, Turkey, Italy, 
are predominantly plant-based with meat as a treat, meat as a flavour. It's only recently have we discovered meat must be central to the dish. And what was so we're saying a switch if we move to healthy eating advice, you have a low carbon diet, less land footprint, and less water would be used as well. And you would not have to give up meat. You can still eat meat. It's great. You can eat meat, extensively reared meat, better quality meat. You can still eat it. It's really good. This diet is varied. It's probably more varied than the average person eats at the moment. Most people probably eat about nine types of meals, and that's it. And they keep switching it around. It's why everyone's favourite foods are always the same. Lasagna, spaghetti bolognese, chicken tikka masala. So... What we've found is for the UK, if we all switched to eat, uh, eat Well plate, it would be what we call a sustainable diet. We've done this work on our Live Well project and demonstrated that for France, for Sweden, and for France, Sweden, and Spain, uh, exactly the same is true. Everyone is overeating different things. The diets are all slightly different. But if they follow their own government's healthy eating advice, it would be a more sustainable diet. For example, in Spain, they don't eat enough vegetables really don't, but they're some of the biggest meat eaters in Europe. They also overconsume fruit, interestingly. Um, in France, they're almost spot on for dairy as well, but they might eat a little bit too much of their sort of meat again, but they undereat vegetables. The Swedish are really good on vegetables. But we found for all these countries, you could shift to that simple advice, varied diets that would follow healthy eating advice. And these are some of the great, really exciting cuisines because they're going to be encouraging local, traditional diets, not a shift to a Western style of eating. The French cuisine is fabulous. Traditional French cuisine is heavily vegetable and plant-based. Traditional English cuisine, heavy vegetable and plant-based. And our work has found that's what you need to do. And it means you have a varied diet. It also will demonstrate that it's an affordable diet. These diets do not have to cost any more. There is an enormous myth around that healthy eating will cost you more. It won't. It genuinely won't. Not just us. A lot of people have looked at this. It can cost you more, but it doesn't have to. It can take you more time. It doesn't have to. It's your own choice. Healthy eating does not have to cost more. The other advantage of this is you're looking at the economic system around at the moment. For society, diet-related ill health from obesity last year had a direct cost of £4.1 billion to the UK taxpayer, to all of us taxpayers. It had an indirect cost of £16 billion. £16 billion. That's sick days, people with a bad diet are less productive, people at school do less well. Together, that's £20 billion we're paying for bad diets. Then you bring in subsidies for the food system. Europe, European cap subsidies, £50 billion a year. You bring in all the other costs. The current system is really expensive, and it's not delivering it's delivering for us so we need to look at that it doesn't have to cost more to move to healthy sustainable diets which might lead to chickens being happy again chickens being outside i think everyone should adopt a chicken um, but we do have six messages we've come up with around for our, our work six simple messages to move to a sustainable food system for us for our choices for me for people to do one, eat more plants. Like I said, 30,000 edible plant species on the, on the planet. Don't tell me plants are boring. If you think plants are boring, you haven't tried enough of them. They are amazing. Um, at the moment, the superfood's kale, probably. 
it's another book. Second one, waste less food. We've heard £60 a month is thrown away in food. We're meant to be in austerity Britain at the moment. What are we doing throwing away £60 of food a month? It's both immoral and just stupid. Um, then third one moderate your meat consumption we don't need to eat this much meat we really don't we're eating far more meat than we've ever done before it's not difficult just eat a little bit less there's so many other things you can eat that are really tasty Um, and also you don't need it for your health to eat that much sports people don't eat that much meat so we don't need to do that next buy food from a responsible source that's responsibly sourced If your thing is social, yeah, fair trade, brilliant. If your thing is, I don't know, you care about the fish, buy MSC, Marine Stewardship Council fish. The reason we say responsible sourced is there's lots of labels out there. There's 65 labels for sustainably sourced seafood, of which only one is probably sustainable, MSC. So think about it, there's lots of labels there that mean nothing more than the legal minimal requirement. There's lots of labels there that are designed to misdirect, and that is a huge problem. But you need to look at responsible sourcing of food and looking at the right labels. It is difficult, but they are out there. The fifth, eat eat less foods high in salt and sugar. We don't need to eat that much sugar. We're eating so much more sugar now than we've ever done. It's absolutely insane to eat that much sugar huge environmental cost, huge water footprint, we're turning land over to grow a crop we don't need to add to our diet and that's got huge impacts but probably the the final message which is the easiest one is eat a greater variety of food eat more food in a greater choice more plants, more whole grain carbohydrates look at variety if you want to eat meat, fine, do you always have to have the breast? there's nothing wrong with other parts of the meat look at other animals, I mean rabbits they're an invasive species in the United Kingdom look at things like that, eat a greater variety and that really is what we can do and those simple steps will help us move to a sustainable food system that I really believe will be more equitable for all, thank you Thank you, Duncan. Our next speaker is Luke Bovins. Uh, Luke joined the LSE from the University of Colorado Boulder. He did his PhD at the University of Minnesota. He is the head of the departments, and he's doing a great job, if I do say so myself. Um, He is also the coordinator for the Masters in uh, Philosophy and Public Policy at the LSE. His research interests include uh, philosophy and public policy, moral theory, and public and social choice. Thanks, Terry. All right, so it was a pleasure to to listen to both talks, and I feel like, you know, we sort of get revved up here, you know, it's a bit of, you know, very engagé in a way um, in in the presentation, but I feel like as a philosopher I should come in and play a bit of the skeptic, and so that's what I'm I'm going to do. And, you know, first thing, and I think it was present in both presentations, and especially, I think, in the WWF's, you know, Live Well Plate um, project, right? I mean, it always strikes me that there is just something strange about this idea that if we improve our diets when it comes to health, that would be one thing. Make changes more healthy living, and so on. And then we can think of 
we can make dietary changes such that the CO2 emissions in this world will go down, such that we do something for climate change. All right? These seem to be two very different goals, right? But somehow, things always are being presented as, no, no, it's really the same thing. And it's like, maybe it's the same thing. Maybe it's true that just by chance, it happens to be the case that if we move away from meat and we eat more vegetables, legumes, and starch, that that's both good for the environment and it's both good for our health. But it's sort of wondrous that these two things come out, you know, in, in, in harmony, all right? I mean, is there a God who made it go this way? I don't know, but... You know, there's a bit of a theodicy here in this, I feel. So I'm sort of skeptical. I'm, I'm skeptical that it's really true that we could, you know, advance both of these projects. And look, they happen to lead us precisely in the same direction. Now, then I was thinking about, you know, we were looking at these healthy plates um, that we find for Sweden, for France, and for Spain in the Live Well plate project of the WWF. And, and they're different. You know, they're, there's differences between what constitutes a healthy plate. Well, there's humans in all these three countries. There's CO2, CO2 emission problems. And, um, you know, I would think that they're roughly similar humans. So what they should do in order to eat healthy should be roughly similar too. So where do the differences come from? So I started looking at it closely. Now, some of the things, of course, that are happening is that, well, you know, you're closer to the sea in Sweden, and you can grow potatoes there, and you can't quite grow the artichokes, so you have to move them, and that's CO2 emissions, and it's, you know, it's just sort of local food production conditions, right? So that's kind of one constraint that you have. But it seemed to me that in exploring these differences between these three ideal plates, there were other things that were going on too. And part of the story is that, you know, what people have different tastes. So don't take that Wasa crisp bread from Sweden and give it to the French. You know, that's never going to work. All right. That'd be hopeless. Right. So, you know, you cater to the local tastes. You respect those local culinary traditions. But then there was another thing that plays a big role, and that makes me nervous, that, that third component. And the third component is that these three countries have different expertise when it comes to nutritional requirements. They say very different things about the nutrition that a Swede, a French person, and a Spanish person needs. And it's like, where does that come from? So I'm sort of worried that there's lots and lots of scientific disagreement here when it comes to defining nutritional requirements in this world. And, and that's largely responsible for the big differences between these three countries. Now, if we then come in and we come and tell people, listen, Swedes, you know, you should eat a bit less cheese and a bit more yogurt, all right? Or we tell the Spanish, you know, you shouldn't eat so much fruit, right? And we say, well, look, you know, here are these dietary requirements that are specific to these countries. And it's like, look, this, there's a lot of scientific disagreement here. And yet we come in 
and make these kind of unwarranted interventions to tell people what to do at a very micro scale. And, and that's the sort of thing that, that, that worries me, really, about projects like this. All right. Now, then I was thinking, you know, are people going to listen to this, right? Because I think there's, you know, the sort of main advice, I think, looks very sound, right? But are people going to listen to this? So you say, well, there's a lot of talk about diets, you know, everywhere you pick up the metro and, you know, Kim Kardashian is doing a new diet and so on, right? So this is what I found. Kim Kardashian can't stop raving about the Atkins diet. And Jennifer Lopez loves the Dukan diet. And Jessica Simpson is a Weight Watcher convert. So, you know, I wouldn't say real people, but, you know, <laughs> sort of. What's around, right, is a lot of dietary aims and objectives in a way that are very different from, you know, the rational story that we get from the live well plate, you know, very much balanced, what's good for the environment, you know, nutritional advice, this is what you should do given all these constraints. No, you know, that sort of rationality, it's like, you know, humankind can't bear that much rationality. They want to do all these crazy things instead, you know, that's what they're aiming for. So I'm sort of asking myself, well, where does all this stuff come from? So, you know, you got the vegetarians, you got the vegans, you got the paleo diet, you got the Atkins diet, the Dukan diet, you have people who are lactose and gluten intolerant and set their diets in that respect. Um, you have the, the raw food enthusiasts and the raw living food enthusiasts. And, you know, where does it all come from, right? And I think. I'm sort of trying to think to myself, you know, why is it that that's the sort of thing that people are obsessed by rather than following the rational advice of the WWF with its problems, as I just laid them out. I've got to play skeptical over the place here, right? So here are a couple of responses that, I'm, I'm, that I was thinking about as to why people go for these, you know, let's call it irrational diets, right? And the first thing is, I think... You know, we say, well, you've got to have more balanced food, right? A bit more of this and a bit less of that and so on. It's very difficult to do that. I mean, if you've tried to, you know, quit drinking or quit eating chocolate and stuff like that, don't try to reduce chocolate. Don't try to reduce drinking. It's really hard. Just cut it out completely, all right? So if ice cream is your problem, say you're lactose intolerant and cut out all the milk, all right? It's much easier. Never suffer a single exception, is what William James said, okay? So that's sort of one idea. The other thing, I think, is identity. You know, there's an identity issue here. And... You know, you want to be a self-identified vegan, vegetarian, gluto, glu um, gluten or lactose intolerant person. You know, you want to have that kind of identity. And, and it seems to me that, you know, there is a C.S. Lewis said, you know, we read to know that we're not alone. Now, I think we eat to know that we're not alone. And we eat in a particular way to know that we're not alone. We eat as vegetarians because we're not alone. We're with so many other vegetarians, you know. That sort of identity thing is very important. And then the third thing that's much more complicated, really, that came to my mind was that 
I think, you know, all through evolution, what happens is this tragic thing that happened to our brains, yeah. And our brains are, are more like Lamborghinis rather than Volvos. I mean, they're wonderful tools, right? But they're more like Lamborghinis than like Volvos. Well, what do I mean by that? These, you know, they're wonderful tools, but they break down all the time, you know? And, and they're not this kind of, you know, sturdy engines, right? That whatever you do to them, they'll keep on going. It's not, they're like Lamborghinis, all right? can do incredible things, but they break down easily, right? So that's sort of the mental health issue. And I think that there is this thing that, you know, focusing on food in a way has really a healing effect in our life, right? And it's that kind of focus, I think, that drives us towards these various diets, all right? Now, I think that there that there is a lot of stories to be told as to how it is that a focus on diet can, can be healing in the way of mental health issues. But let me just throw out a couple, a couple of things here. So, you know, as I said before, there's the issue of it gives you a sense of belonging. It gives you a sense of, of, of home, right? And that, I think, is a, a positive mental health issue. Then I think that there is this issue that, you know, when I'm busy with, you know, checking out on the box, you know, whether this has um, any milk products in it or how much fiber it has or whatever I'm obsessed by, then I'm not obsessing about the other things that are bothering me. All right. So there is this sort of sense of focus that that is good. I think you know, start focusing on 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 on, on dieting issues when you know mental health is is really what's bothering you. Okay. So now I think that there is also this issue of displacement. I mean, there's these various things in life that can go wrong and they affect your mental health, right? But you can't do anything about those things. So shift them. Say, oh, it's really, you know, it's really all these lactose pro products that, that are, you know, causing my troubles, right? Shift them. You shift them nicely. There's where you have control. You can do something about it. It's a sort of displacement issue, I think, that's going on. And, you know, maybe I'm getting a little bit too cynical here. So let, let, me, let me sort of turn the other way, because I do believe that there is something to be said for this, um, that, that there is this strange value which we call purity, Right, and what the heck is purity? Um, well, I think it's a way of thinking about the world where you say, like, look, you know, this is one area of my life, right? And I want things to be nicely um, balanced there, sort of unadulterated with all kinds of crap that can happen. You know, they need, it needs to be sort of simple and all of that, right? That's the way I want my life to be, right? Now, what you do is you say, well, think about this whole issue of food, right? You want this to be simple and unadulterated by all these chemicals, and you want it to be balanced and so on. And the idea of purity is that if I can reach that in my food consumption, then I will have it paralleled in my life at large, right? So you want pure, simple food because you want pure, simple living, Right? And, and, and that sort of trick, I think, works really nicely in mental health control, in keeping the Lamborghini going. All right? So, you know, that is, I think, where a lot of our emphasis on diet comes from. Um, now, it is also the kind of thing that gets us into all these strange diets that are not quite backed up by the science. And, and, I, and I, like, I like what I see when I see, you know, the, 
the, the live well plate and the attempt to have it be backed up by science. Although I must say, I think it's extremely difficult to do that properly. And there's a lot of scientific disagreement, much more than we're willing to give credit, right? Now, on the other hand, when I think about these various diets that are not backed up by the science, right, then there's a lot of questions to be raised. Um, let me sort of say something about the chickens. So you get all these vegetarians who are, you know, so much concerned about, you know, animal suffering and so on, right? And these how much? 60 billion chickens, right? 20, bil 20 billion chickens. All right, not so bad. Um, <laughs> you know, so all these, all, these, all these chickens need to lay eggs, right? So, but in order to get these kind of chickens, you have to have little chicks first. And, and then there are these poor male chicks that will never lay eggs, right? What's going to happen to those 20 billion little male chicks, right? Well, take a look at the web and see what happens to them. They basically go in, in a big funnel, and then, and then maceration is the best, the most humane thing to do to them, they say, right? So maceration, what the heck is that? Yeah, so don't gas them. That's cruel. Maceration is a humane thing to do. So I wonder how it works, yeah? So it's a huge funnel. The chicks go in there, and then the funnel goes, and it just sucks them all through, bunch of knives or whatever, you know, and the chicks are gone, all right? So all these male chicks get killed at birth, all right? Now, what happens to, to, to the milk that you, you consume as a vegetarian? Yeah, you need these cows for it, all right? But there is a problem because there's also, you know, the, these male calves. What do you do with those, right? That's a more com complicated story. They don't quite fit in the funnel. Um, but, you know, the thing is that depending on the veal price and depending on to what extent your cattle is specialized as dairy cattle versus beef cattle. So if you go to the States, you've got high specialization. And basically what happens to these male calves is that they live for about five days and then they're taken to the abattoir. All right. So, you know, if you're a vegetarian and you're wondering about, you know, the uh, animals and you're, you're concerned about animal suffering, think about the male chicks and think about the male calves. Right. Um, and it's very difficult to do anything about this. Actually, there's there's attempts to make technological advances, but all this isn't isn't working all that great. Um, same thing, I think, you know, with the obsession of, to, of uh, with organic food. I mean, one has to think about the fact that this requires quite. I mean, the, the crop yield is lower. Um, you need to have crop rotations, which means that you need about 70 to 80 percent more land use. Yeah. So this is hugely costly in the way of land use. And if you've ever you know, worked on an organic farm, you'll also see that this is incredibly costly too in the way of you know, human labor. That is, if you see a crew of people weeding through, um, through cornfields, um, it, is, it, is, it is serious work, all right? Um, and, and now you could say, well, you know, what, what can we do about this, right? Well, it is true that there is attempts at the moment to make technological advances in organic food. Um, but we haven't seen um, much emphasis being put on this, this whole industry. Like, for instance, what you see at the moment is that in order to weed these cornfields, what they're trying to do is get machines to go through there that, that, just, um, that just sort of squir squirt all this uh, corn cob grit 
um, in order to, to eradicate all of the weeds, right? But this is all very new technology. Or what you also see is that machine vision is being used. So, you know, these little robots go through there and they try to recognize what the weeds are, and then they put some hot oil on them, and so on. But, you know, all of this really is technology that needs to be developed. Um, and, I, and I'm not sure, actually, when we think about the localism, right, there's any hope for this uh, to go in that direction. I mean, what we need is sort of grant projects there in order to get um, organic food to become much more prevalent and to get technology to take care of these problems of land use as well as, you know, the backbreaking human labor that is at the moment required in order to keep this going. So thanks very much. Thanks, Luke. Um, so now, uh, before we turn it over to the audience, we're going to have a little bit of a discussion amongst ourselves, and I'll, I'll try to lead that discussion a little bit. Um, and I guess I'll start with Alina and Duncan. So Luke, in a sense, uh, threw down a challenge to both of you. Um, and Luke's challenge, as I, as I understood it, was the question of trade-offs, right? I mean, so this kind of uh, live-well plate that seems to give us all the best of all the possible worlds. See, and Luke seems a little bit skeptical about that. And Alina, I mean, you gave us uh, four different objectives, but of course they're sometimes in conflict with each other, right? Addressing one thing um, can lead us to do worse on something else. So maybe you guys can both say a, a little bit about, about trade-offs. I think, I think there definitely isn't a god that's making health and the environment agendas align. Um, that would be so helpful. But, <laughs> um, there's definitely areas there where you, know, you, you try to fix one problem and another one crops up. Um, right. I think I was very much on the focus that you know, if you wanted to solve world hunger and gave everybody fridges to reduce waste, you know, you'd have increased CO2 emissions. Um, but I liked what you said about the identity issue, because it's true. If in my social circle I say I eat meat, it is shocking. It's like, oh, really? You eat meat? You still do that? Um, And there really is that issue of identity and belonging. It's like the enlightened ones against everybody else. Um, And growing up in Spain, so yes, we do overconsume fruit, and that's because water gets quite boring after some time in the heat. Um, Yeah. So it, it's it's interesting to see that you know I can't get it out probably in words, but I, I can see how this identity issue is at the core of what we choose and what we don't choose. But I have to say that I'm a little bit distant from the living world plate, and that I really see the immediate solution being as a technological solution that is probably not going to be organic, even though if we figured out a new label for it, it'd be closer to organic than our current production. But it'll still be be more more, more like Asimov high tech technology than than organic in the countryside. Okay. Um, yeah. Just just to be clear, we're saying that's only one of the solutions. Only one of the solutions. One of the solutions. With, with this production, technology, and consumption, you need all three. If you just go for one of them, we're going to fail, and that's something we. Um, but on the challenge we got, it's interesting. You're, talking about how environment and health, the solutions are the same and 
Well, one of the reasons the solutions are the same, because it's happened at the same time in the last 50 years, agriculture has been industrialised and diets have been homogenised. And while that's happened, we've seen at exactly the same time rising environmental destruction resulting in this um, agricultural system and both land and oceanic. And we've seen rises in obesity and growing inequality in the food system. So they've happened at exactly the same time. Some people will argue it's a coincidence. I'll let you decide. Um, So that's why we're seeing it. So the problems have come from the same source. So there's a good chance there's going to be interrelated solutions. But yes, it has been quite lucky that the work today has shown the solutions are quite are interrelated. They're not perfect. There are issues there. There will always be issues there, um, like seafood. You should eat. You should eat fish. You should eat oily fish. But seventy-five percent of ocean of catch wild caught fisheries are overexploited. So we're going to run out of fish at some stage. Um, and if everyone in China ate two portions of fish a week, yeah, bye bye. See in seafood. Uh, But of the differences in diets, it comes down to, as you pointed out, that a lot of it is down to what's traditional, what's grown, what you want. But when you go a bit, you take a step back and look at the dietary advice from every country that issues dietary advice in the world, and I'm sad to say I've had to do that, most of them have exactly the same top line. The numbers are different. The makeup of your plants is different. The makeup of your carbohydrates is different. So the, I don't know, the English diet might focus on one type of carbohydrate and say, yeah, eat more pasta or more potatoes. Um, the Asian diet might say more rice. It's different. It might say different amounts of plants, definitely. But they all say the same thing. Your diet should be predominantly plants and plant-based whole grain carbohydrates. Every single one of them say exactly the same. About two-thirds of your diet should be that. The other third should be meat, should be protein, and should be the, the treat foods like your cakes and your sugars and your salts. So, yes, there's differences when you go micro. There always will be because it's an evolving science. Science and nutritionism is very young, really young. Um, it's not physics. It's not biology. It's still there. It's still evolving. There's always going to be differences. Most independent nutritionists have got very similar views about the way we need to go and we need to start at a place we've gone wrong we need to start at the place where we start going back to eating more plants more whole grape fruit and vegetables and looking at all the diets and the trendy diets um, when I'm talking about diets I'm talking about a lifestyle change a complete looking at our diet switching on the head one of the reasons I think all these diets are so trendy and people keep jumping on them and jumping off A, they're often supported by someone who's marketing a a trick to you Um, obesity's going up, we're still buying into more diets and more diets and spending billions every year on diets there's a lot of marketing going into that so that's part of it, and these diets are normally seen as short term solutions that when you finish it you then switch back to what you're eating before because you can, and most people who go on a diet put the weight back on straight as soon as they come off a diet, so it's that type of diet is not necessarily healthy. A lifestyle choice, and actually going to a long-term lifestyle choice, that's where we'll have probably the wins. And that's what, for me, moving to a sustainable diet is key to it. So I have a question for, for Luke now, and then also follow up a little bit with um, Duncan. So Luke, both Alina and Duncan made a moral case for eating differently. And in your discussion about how we make our choices uh, about eating, you spoke about purity, you spoke about identity, but you didn't speak a lot about morality. And I mean, are you skeptical that these kinds of moral arguments for an ethical obligation to eat in a certain way 
have will ever have any force, and if so, why why are you so skeptical about that? Mm-hmm. So you know, let, let's think about how the the moral case is supposed to work, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so there is the issue of CO two emissions, right? So that's you know the the climate change issue, right? And and then I guess there is the issue of um, eating in such a way that there is food enough for the whole world. I mean, that's sort of a, an equality issue, right? Um, and, um, you know, no wastage, of course, you know, going back to good old Locke, right, um, is exactly in the same, um, in the same ballpark. Um, so, you know, you're only supposed to take from the earth no more than, than, than what you can actually consume yourself so that nothing is getting wasted, right? Uh, and otherwise, you shouldn't have taken such a big chunk of land, right? I mean, that's sort of the idea. So all these moral arguments are, are present there. Well, I guess I guess I'm not sure that you know food consumption and inequality issues are going to be so aligned. That is, that by focusing, I mean, look, I mean, it's one thing to say if we solve inequality, then we will see more equality as well when it gets to to food consumption, right? But I think that. Any kind of way of aiming for equalizing food consumption or making changes to our food consumption will make any kind of changes to the inequality that we see in the world. So I just don't see the causal direction in that way. And then when it comes to the CO2 emissions, it's like, yes, all kinds of things should be done there. But it's not quite clear. And of course, there's also the biodiversity issue when thinking about overfishing and so on, right? Now, it's not quite clear to me that, you know, moving to, I mean, what sort of, what sort of changes really need to be made in order to reduce CO2 emissions, and whether these kind of changes are the kind of changes that will also lead to a more healthy diet. That's what I'm curious about. Um, now, in a way, of course, when you talk about, you know, sort of the gauntlet of, you know, are you not concerned about morality at all, right? Um, when I was talking about the mental health issue and this issue of purity and improving the purity of our food, and what is that all about, right? Sort of the idea that, you know, we eat in a particular way and we live in a particular way. And there's a harmony between what we do here in the eating sphere, in the food sphere, and in the living sphere, right? I'm actually much more sympathetic to that, to that maybe little crazy idea, right, that you want to give me credit for. So I see a lot of morality there, actually, uh, very much of an individualized morality. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not sure how much we, we can get out of the kind of you know, collective, ar- collective morality arguments that we're trying to make. So I guess that's sort of roughly my position. It's interesting. Um, actually, I'll, I'll move over to Alina. Um, Can I squeeze a quick response oh, please, to absolutely. one of those? Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned um, a very interesting direction when you were speaking about inequality, but I, was, um, I came across a very interesting fact, and that is if uh, women's rights were improved in developing countries, you would almost get rid of hunger, simply because of issues around access to land and resources to actually you know, get on and solve the problem, which I thought was very interesting. Mm-hmm. But then the direction, once again, is from you know, inequality between genders to better food consumption, right? And I'm much more worried about, is there anything from, is there any, any kind of causal direction from better food consumption to fixing inequality in the world, yeah? 
if we start eating differently, the world will not become a more equal place, in other words. Yeah. Slowly. I mean, um, I was at an event where they spoke about how many times you buy a product in a week or how many times you eat in a day. And effectively, you're voting. You're voting what you think should be the the choice, whether it's organic or fair trade or whatever, or whether you should just go for the bog-standard battery chicken. It's the consumer's choice there where it's the only way that you can start that chain back to have a benefit. Right, so, so the, the kind of agriculture may change. That is, if we choose to eat organic food, right, then, then the kind of agriculture um, that, that is being practiced out there may change, right? But, but I'm wondering, you know, if we choose to eat differently, um, less meat-intensive diets and so on and so on, I don't think what's going to happen is that we say, oh, look, you know, now we don't need all that money anymore. We might as well send it uh, to third world aid. It's like, no, we're just going to buy more crap from China. You know, <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I would actually say that you've hit the, the big part of that. And the fact is people, when they save money, say, on the food, will then decide they'll get a new phone. We consume far too much. We far too much. People in England now have a laptop, a phone, and a tablet. Why? No idea. Um, upgrade their phones every year because Apple has told them to. And that's part of the problem. It's actually overconsumption in the developed world. And we're selling this lifestyle as an aspirational lifestyle to the rest of the world. And I think that's something we also have to wake up to. We don't need so much stuff. We don't need the latest computer. We don't. The average house in England has more television than televisions than people. It's just bonkers. To- I guess I'll follow up with that, Duncan. I mean, so so it seems like your case is very strong, and yet people aren't. It doesn't seem like people are doing much. I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe you feel like people are doing a lot, or. They're doing something, but not enough. I guess so. I guess the question to you is why, if the case is so strong, there's a moral case, there's a self-interest case, um, there's a kind of there's all sorts of cases, right? There's a, various kinds of moral cases. Why aren't people doing moving more in the direction that you're suggesting? Well, people are. Uh, they, people are starting to. When we first started doing this work, we were told, "You're crazy! How dare you tell us what to eat? How how can you do this?" Um, I don't consume too much. My diet's perfectly fine. Businesses said people will never make these changes. Now. There's debate going on. There's changes making. Meat consumption is starting to drop slowly, not just because of us. That would be far too vain. And people are starting to wake up to it. Prices are starting to change. Businesses are waking up to it. One of the best... It's not best thing, the wrong word. One of the issues around it is there's, we're increasingly moving into a resource-constrained world. In this resource-constrained world, prices are starting to go up for basic commodities and inputs into commodities. So almost everything we do is reliant on oil. Oil, it will start running out at some stage. It'll cost more. Land, soil, they're all going to start to be charged for that. Water is the big crisis coming, and we're starting to be charged for water, and it's going to keep happening. And some businesses are starting to go, hang on a minute, should we be selling high-input foods, such as your meats and things, if we want to be around in 15 years, or should we move to a more resilient model, which means we look at slightly lower input foods? And there are some businesses, no, some big mainstream companies are starting to do that. Some politicians are waking up to it. People are starting to talk about it a lot more, and there are, is change going on, but it's going to be very slow, but it's happening. Great. And I'll just want, give one last question to Alina, and then we'll open it up to, to the audience. 
Um, so we've talked a little bit about um, the, the, the title of the panel is Ethics for Your Kitchen, and many of us are individuals in thinking about our own kitchens, but you are in a position where you have a kind of collective kitchen that you're in charge of in a, in a certain kind of sense, and you talked about the challenges of moving to Meatless Monday, and now it's Reduced Meat Monday. And I guess the question is, when you have, when you're in, uh, involved in an organization where people have different kinds of views about what is the kind of importance of um, ethical eating, how, and, and how important is ethical eating, how do you balance those different considerations when you're thinking about the collective kitchen of the LSE? It's, it's a long process. Um, we're very lucky that our catering team is very, very motivated to make their food as good as possible. And I think the director of LSE mentioned the food as one of the good points of LSE. Um, shockingly, just a, in a completely aside <laughs> that he made for the year. And um, we spend a lot of time looking at what goes on people's plates. There's, there's a cost threshold that we can't go above. There's a limit to how much we can ask students to pay for a plate when we're on campus. Um, but they're doing some really good work about making sure there's always green choices, vegetables, um, all our eggs are free, free range, that, that sort of thing. It's, it seems like small gestures, but it's what you can do at this scale. Um, and as a whole, a lot of what the purchasing that, that happens for food uh, goes through large, really large consortiums. And when clients like the LSE, start putting pressure on, I want to see more sustainable options amongst the ingredients that we can purchase, among the things we can do, it really starts having an effect. Um, I, one of the facts that I found out quite recently is that 18% of the sales that we made last year at LSE related to fair trade products, which for me means that if we're buying it from far away, at least we're making sure somebody's getting paid for it. Great. So with that, we'll open it up to our audience, and I might, it's, I might take a few questions at a time at some point, but let me just start uh, one at a time. Uh, yes, uh, back there, and, and the woman, uh, sorry, the, or, sorry, not the, the woman, the, I can't really see very well. The person, the, the gentleman with the white hair, sorry. Oh, it's per, the person, person with the white hair, sorry. I couldn't, I can't me? see very well. You're talking, talking yes, about me? Yes. Oh, okay, thank yes, you very please. much. Um, uh, panel's talked quite a lot about individual responsibility, uh, and Duncan was just just starting to talk about governments and businesses. Um, and I think we should have talked more about the ethics of government and the ethics of big business and what we should expect from them. Because it seems to me it's a completely unequal fight. You know, we can tell people to eat more vegetables and eat less sugar, but when there's a McDonald's on every corner and it's cheap, and when there's adverts on television marketing sugary cereals to children over and over again, it just seems to me we're not going to win this battle, just focusing on individual responsibility. I will take one more, actually, um, all the way in the back. Um, following on from, from what that lady just said, uh, just listening to everything that, that all four of you have, have spoken about. I, I think the biggest issue here overall is, is two factors, and one is money and the other is education. And education seems to be at the very bottom of the pile for the mass of the people, especially in this country. America is a, is a very prime example, actually, of how these people are, 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 are deeply uneducated on what they're eating. They're just sold, precisely like this lady said, the cheapest option. And most of these people are paid such a pitiful amount of money that invariably they will buy the cheapest option solely because they're trying to feed their family. This is, this is the largest issue I've found uh, traveling the world over. The, 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 
the broadest thing that I've learned is that for the most part sustainability is at the very back of everybody's mind because really they're just trying to survive on the on the little income that they have. That's the largest issue that we have. In this country especially, from a, a governmental perspective, we're sold this idea, this fantasy that, that actually we're, we're, we're trying to turn our country healthy, but invariably we're, we're run by large corporate companies who, who want nothing more than for us to continue to buy the crappiest food possible and, and at, a, at the cheapest price, so we'll buy more of it. That, that's the issue we have right now, I think. Thank you. I think, I think I'll tackle education. I completely agree um, that education is... It's been an eye-opener, first of all, being in the, in the UK and seeing a system where there is a class system in education to start with. But... Um, the government has made a commitment to invest in the state school side of things to teach about food education. It's a, a program that was starting at the moment. Um, it has been <coughs> trialled for quite a time now. It's called Food for Life. And it, it involves kids actually growing and eating their own food. And there have been exciting comments mentioned, such as uh, when somebody grew a bean, wow, that's what a bean looks like, and eating that bean, but it's not a vegetable because I grew it. Exciting. Uh, so I think there's change starting at the bottom. I think the states did something quite similar uh, around recycling. You know, get the, got the kids to uh, teach their parents how to recycle. The question is whether that will be fast enough. It's going to happen. There is that change, that movement, that interest, but it's just quite slow. Okay. I'll, t- I'll take up individual responsibility. Um, first... Of course we've got individual responsibility. We have to take individual responsibility and never underestimate the power of people. Um, The biggest example I'll give you is fair trade. People demanded fair trade bananas. Sainsbury's responded by making all their bananas fair trade. That that was a game changer in the fair trade. What people can do is massively important. And one of the reasons I say that is I sat down with ministers from the UK and further afield. I've sat down with people from big companies and I sit down with people. And you hear the same stories from each of them. So you talk to governments and they go, it's not our job to to talk about what people should be eating or legislate against it. That's the role of companies and people. Talk to companies and they go, oh, no, 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 it's not our job to tell people what to eat. That's the role of governments to legislate for it and people because we respond to demand. Talk to people and they go, oh, no, no, it's not our role. We trust the, the businesses to supply the food we should have and it's the role of governments to legislate for it. So there's a constant wheel of people passing the buck, constantly. So I think it's, everyone should stand up and push for it and push for this. I think it's massively important. But I also think, yeah. Challenge, challenge businesses, push businesses. Well, I do. Almost on a daily basis, I'll be challenging a business. Um, I have a particular issue with things like marketing. I think the way they market food is disgraceful. You know, you have some six eggs with a chicken running across the field. They're battery farmed, but, you know, they're still pretended to be nice for us. So I think we've got to start challenging that, challenge what we're sold. Um, look, I mean, look at the ubiquitous nature of fizzy drinks. Red Bull gives you wings. Yeah, it'll also kill you one day. Um, and then it's also governments. Yes, we're lobbying governments, but we're in a government that doesn't want to listen. They'll say, oh, we can't tell people what to eat. We've got to, uh, we can't do that. The agricultural lobby, we've got to make sure the farmers are there. So if you really want to get government to change, I'm going to lobby them, part of my job. But we've, we've all got votes. Start making it impo- important. Talk to the MPs. So we all have a role to play in this. And yeah, but I think we should all do what we can. 
And just a practical way to challenge the companies, if you Google behind the brands, you can just challenge a company to be better. In the red, um, in the middle. Hi. Um, my question is, is mostly to Duncan, but anyone who can add to it. Um, I think part of the problem with ignorance about food choices is to do with understanding the labelling and about them being intentionally misleading. Um, so I'm interested what you would advise that would empower people, what choices can they be aware of? Um, even things like uh, free range and free run, how, you know, how many people really understand the difference between those and how promising they sound and actually what they mean in a material sense. Um, are there any things you would say that's what to look for or that's what to ask? So on labelling, labelling is... Really, 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 really hard. They're almost designed to be misleading. That's part of the problem with them. There's so much information. And then they argue that, oh, the people won't understand them, so we can't do various things. So, yeah, I tend to, for myself, um, I've, I'm fortunate. I live in a world where I get to spend a lot of time reading about this stuff. But I do look at it. I try to buy fresh produce. I, 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 love, I love supermarkets. I'll go to supermarkets, but I'll, I'll buy fresh if I can, I'll try not to buy too much packaged stuff. I think that's really, really important. Um, it's quite easy with fruit, or, fruit and vegetables. Um, just buy what's sort of on the shelves. I, I personally don't think you should worry about organic or local at the moment. Just buy fresh food, whatever it is. I think that's the biggest first step. But we do have an issue of labelling. It's just a case of researching what's good. Fair trade. Rainforest Alliance, they're good. MSC, that's good. If you see um, RSPO Roundtable on sustainable palm oil, you know that's, that's, that's quite good. It's good environmental standards. But unfortunately, there's no easy way around it. It's look for it. From a health perspective, we've got traffic lights. If it's green, it's good. If it's red, it's bad. Just look at things like that. But other than that, it's just deliberately misleading, which isn't what you want to hear. I'm sorry. I, I remember a session, actually, with... Uh a number of people from big companies who were into, you know, corporate responsibility and so on. Um, and, and at one point, you know, I asked them, I said, you know, I can see that maybe some things you do are not in your short-term advantage, but, you know, um, is it the case that whenever you make a choice, it has to be at least in the long, to the long-term advantage of the, of, the, of the company? And the person actually started laughing, and he said, you don't understand how this works at all. He says... You know, think about think about the the dolphin-free tuna, right? Now, what you do as a company is you say, how could we sensitize people about a particular issue? You know, what's going to work here? It's like, oh yeah, yeah, dolphins in the tuna. You know, that would be a good idea. Um, so let's start pushing this. You know, so it's not the case that this is a grassroots movement. It is a company who basically say, you know, this is something we can get people riled up about, right? And and so then they start putting out this dolphin-free, you know, tuna, and everybody is, well, what's that all about, right? Now, by the time that the population is really sensitized and says, you know, that's we 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 don't want any, you know, dolphins in our tuna anymore. You know, the thing is that you are way ahead of the competition because. You know, you've been doing this already for a long time. You sensitize the population, and you're selling like crazy, and the competition can't keep up with that. Try to find things like that where you can make the population sensitive about particular issues and try to be ahead of the game. That's what you need to do, right? But, you know, in, in, when it comes to, well, what about the truth of the matter, and are these really ethical concerns? I think it's a long ways away from, um, from, from their reasoning. So. Yeah, uh, down here, the gentleman in the front. 
Um, I work for one of the, or for the largest natural fruit retailer in the world um, since about a year. And I don't really have much to do with the um, making and, and buying of food, but I'm part of the whole delivery side and the finance side, and actually come from economics. And I've kind of learned, I started studying during the crisis and kind of learned every problem has usually to do, and that's the first fundamental thing you learn in economics, is supply and demand. The crisis has to do with consumer demand. If the consumer doesn't demand something, a product doesn't get developed, it doesn't get put in the market, and we don't find out whether it has problems or side effects, medication, or anything like that. Um, one of the things I've learned in the last year, actually, is, and that's changed my way of consuming food, is seasonal. So whether it's local or not local, fruit doesn't grow every, I don't know, tomatoes don't grow all year round. Cherries don't grow all year round. Strawberries don't grow all year round. You can only buy them normally in certain periods of the year. And if you buy them when they're in season, then you only consume them then. It means you're going to consume other things throughout the year. And that changes your demand for it. But we started getting used to getting everything for cheap all the time. And we're blaming either governments or businesses for it. And they're the ones only supplying what we demand we vote them in, we work for them, so it's really up to people to make the decisions, not companies, business, or governments, to make things move. Let's take one more before uh, we want guests down here. Hi, uh, my question is sort of um, related, and maybe it's a challenge to that. Um, I'm I'd sort of like to challenge you on the point where you say everyone's passing the buck around, but I'd like to ask where the real power is there. I mean, you say that Businesses will say we're only responding to demand, but then you're interested in marketing. And uh, to my limited understanding, there's a huge amount that goes on in terms of creating demand through marketing to sell sugar or soy or whatever it is that's profitable. And so I'd like to sort of ask at what point do we say it's the consumer's responsibility to shop seasonally or ethically? Um, but where are the ethical responsibilities of companies in terms of marketing? Where, where, are, the, where, the, where are the lines we draw in terms of? Profit and where it's okay to push for profit over sustainability and health. I'd really sort of like to talk about that a little bit about the the morality, you know, the ethics for not just our kitchens individually, but the, the global kitchen and, and what is sold to us. Because I, I don't think it's as easy as saying spend more time reading labels. As Luke said, you only know what to look for on the label if someone tells you to look for it. You only know to look for fair trade if the fair trade certification. Okay. I'll, I'll give that a go. Um, yeah, I agree. I'm, that I've, I might not be clear. I wasn't saying it's just consumers. I'm saying everyone abdicates responsibility, and every single sector of the food system has responsibility for making it a more sustainable food system. Um, so I completely agree that. I have no problem with profit and people putting profit first, but we've got to a stage now where we've put profit first for so long, the environmental externalities are coming to hit us, climate, water, etc., biodiversity loss. It's now got to a stage that if we really do care, if we really do want to make these changes, if we want to avoid runaway climate change, if we want to avoid water shortages, if we want to have 
a large amount of forests and stuff like that. This is moral, I'm saying, and I recognise it's moral. This is important to me because that's where I've come from. But if we want all that and that's what we choose as our priorities, we have to start making those changes or demanding the changes. Some businesses are already making those changes. They recognise it from a pure business perspective. So it's... But there's nothing wrong with a bit of profit. And if, if a company like Unilever can increase its profits by making those choices, which Unilever has done and massively increased its profits, brilliant. Why not? They're doing it. They're showing you can make profit and have a moral case. Um, a few other companies have done that. So, I, yeah, what you're saying, I don't have any problem with it. I think it's very true. But I think we need to look at all of these different things. I have a huge problem with consumers' demand uh, something. I don't think that's true in the slightest. Um, I'm, a cons- I'm a person, I'm not a consumer. The concept of consumers was invented in the 80s, and it was to dehumanise people so you can market them and label them as consumers, and that made them people who just consume. They don't have anything else. That's one thing. Um, consumers never demanded breakfast cereals. We didn't demand them. We never asked for them. It was worked out to be a way to utilise and get maximum profit out of things like corn and soy. We never demanded it. They were then sold to us by advertising. That didn't work, so they put free gifts in it. We used to eat things like eggs. They put free gifts in it to get us. If you go into a breakfast cereal, breakfast cereal aisle, look at where the eyes of the cartoon characters are pointing. They're pointing down to catch children's eyes. So you start looking at the cartoon characters, so you want to buy Cocoa Pops or Frosties. So we didn't demand cereals, but they're hugely profitable. So they're promoted. Now we're used to them. We didn't demand cheese strings. Uh, we didn't demand various things that are put on the shelf every day. We like them. They taste good. I mean, yeah, they taste fantastic. So we start eating them. But they're often sold to us. And the amount of money that goes into selling them to us is done for the pure purpose of creating demand by people. And then I don't think it's acceptable to then go, oh, it's not us, it's you, you, you asked for them. I, I didn't ask for cheese strings. I didn't ask for a chicken tikka masala sandwich. Um, so, and I don't think anyone in this room would probably go, mm, yeah, that's what I wanted for lunch. So I think it's a bit of both in there. It's, it's tricky, too, when you, know, you think sort of of the seasonal food. I mean, how much better can it get? And actually, I just wrote an email to Riverford saying, why don't you have a seasonal box? So I'm on your side, right? But I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm not all that confident that this is really the way to go. I mean, think about you know, the migrant labor that is required in seasonal, in seasonal food. I mean, because in order to get those apple pick, apples picked, you need migrant labor. Um, the conditions under which these people are, are working are often horrific. Um, if, you're, you know, if, you're, if you have a, a tomato farm in Kenya, you might think very differently about the UK moving to seasonal food. Right? So I, I'm not all that sure this is the way to go. Um, I think it's a very complicated question. Okay, let's go, let's go over a few questions. So first, um, back in the white... Thanks. I actually just wanted to respond to someone else's question. I guess he's gone now. But um, uh, it turns out that the U.S. is actually not even in the top five of the world's most obese countries anymore. So we are the poster child, but we have made vast improvements. It can be done. Um, Two things. First of all, I was somewhat surprised, unless I missed it, that we haven't talked a bit about the ethics of GMO and the food supply and how that has actually facilitated um, the nourishment of millions of people who otherwise previously did not have access to food. 
Um, and secondly, the other thing that um, I was curious to ask about is we haven't discussed much about drinks, but for example, alcohol is a huge component of our consumption, particularly here in the UK, where I would argue is possibly a food group and a big one at that. Um, and so, you know, what are the ethics surrounding, uh, you know, obesity and, and health disease around the consumption of that? Thanks. Got a couple more from back there. Yep, the one, the, the yep, right there. Yep. Hi, um, I just want to, um, I find um, the question put direct to uh, Luke is um, you kind of talk about, um, it seems like your argument is against the consumerism as a whole. It's as if this, um, the, um, uh, if we sell food, we will have a better future and equality. And you kind of try to put a needle, like try to test if the dream will burst. So my question is, um, what, in your view, what is um, like a practical, um, practical way in this reality when it comes to food policy, or how should our consumer not be like blind by great television effort of Jamie Oliver jumping, but what is our way, what is the way of, um, or how how we save ourselves from? feel the fear of if we don't solve the food our world will have a massive hole or something just wonder what is your view on that what is the practical um, ways to deal with food go ahead uh, yeah, let, let me first um, say, think about, say something about the cheap food issue right I mean I remember when I when I just arrived in the States about you know 30 or 40 years ago, uh, there were two kinds of co-ops. There were the, the Leninist co-ops and the Stalinist co-ops, right? And the Leninist co-ops wanted to give people better food, and the Stalinist co-ops wanted to have um, you know TV dinners for the workers at a cheap price, right? <laughs> it was just this sort of clash in a way, right? I mean, you know, people were just joking about this, but there really were these kind of two movements in the in the cooperative movement in the States. Um, so, so I think you know the the idea of of, um, of 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 having to pay so much less in the way of the percentage of our income on food is not insubstantial. And of course, you know the quality of the food has gone down, but we do pay so much less. Um, and I think we shouldn't forget that. And, and and the fact actually that there are so many more people who are who are. Maybe I shouldn't say properly nourished, but at least you know not undernourished in the in the, in the sense that that we we saw like thirty or forty years ago. I mean, is an important issue, um, and and we just can't you know be snobs here and say oh the food should be you know so much more um, so, uh, respond to so much higher standards, right? You know, as far as sort of my my big vision. Of, I don't have much of a big vision. Um, I, I must say that uh, I think abuses need to be need to be addressed. And you know, when there are things that are that are clearly um, clearly problematic in the way of, 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 of food production, uh, these things should be 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 addressed. But uh, but I'm very skeptical about um, sort of any grand movements really, or making any suggestions as to you know grand things that could be done. Let me get um, Alina and Duncan to hold off on their grand vision to just finish off. And let me just get two final questions here, and then we'll, we'll um, just let you guys say what your grand vision is in addition to addressing the questions. I just wanted to bring up the question of 
for example, a food like quinoa that hasn't been mentioned. Uh, how about a case like that? Really good for you, but you're pricing out the country out of their own main source of vegetable protein. These kinds of um, sustainability catastrophes have been in economics for the last 200 years. Like with Malthus, nothing ever really materialized because techn technological innovation always keeps up. So how do you know there actually is ever going to be a catastrophe? So why don't you answer those two questions and then also give maybe your final, um, final thoughts on, on uh, your final objectives. Yeah. Okay. Two, okay, I'm going to chapel two of those. Uh, the Malthus one. In history, ever since the Roman times and before then, I think uh, you can go back as far as the Mesopotamians, um, societies have grown. Societies have moved to industrialised systems of agriculture where they're reliant on large monocrops. Every single one of those societies has failed, primarily because of a failure of the agricultural system that's gone on. That can be... You can look at the Minoans, Mesopotamians. You can go down, you can look at the Romans. It is a thing we've done and we're repeating exactly the same problems with the Romans one of the problems was they stretched their empire out they relied on trade routes coming in they relied on large scale monocultures and they completely took the soil the nutrients out of the soils in Italy so that when the, uh, the empire started to collapse they couldn't actually start growing their own food and one of the main problems with civil dis disobedience was bread rights because they couldn't get food so, and we're kind of doing the same at the moment but on a far bigger scale and I wouldn't put my faith purely in technology alone because I think that's a way to ruin eventually. It's going to help. I've got no... I think technology is going to be massively important. Some of the stuff that is happening at the moment is mind-boggling and really exciting. But on its own, I don't think we've got... The human beings got a good track record with technology on its own. On GMOs, it's not been mentioned. It's always a great one to talk, bring up. I'm talking for myself, not for WWF. I'm going to talk for the fact that I would say GMOs are interesting. They are overpraised in some quarters, and unjustly so. They haven't really done that much yet. They really haven't. Um, they're also massively demonised for the potential havoc they could cause, and they do scare the heebie-jeebies out of me. But um, let's face it, if you eat meat... Or if you eat dairy, you eat GMOs on a daily basis because about 85% of soy is GMO. So if you're eating meat and dairy, you're eating GMOs. So it's there. It's out of the box. We have to look at it in a mature adult way and start exploring it. And if someone came to me and said, I have made a, a, a crop out of GMOs, which is going to increase its nutrition, use less land, have less biodiversity impact, use less water, the seeds will be free for people to trade, and it will increase incomes of rural communities, I would think I have to support that because that would be massively important. So I'm not saying they're good or bad at the moment. I'm saying they need to be kept in the mix. So maybe final, final, yeah. oh, final word from Alina, maybe. Just touching very, very briefly on GMO. Technology is pretty cool, um, but I don't like the people that have the control of the technology. I don't like the fact that I have no say in what they do with it, or in fact, hardly anybody does. And as Duncan mentioned, I, I, I eat it pretty frequently. Um, and on the drinks and alcohol issue that you mentioned, it's, it's a big one because the amount of water that's involved in producing alcohol is pretty big. 
Um, I know the drinks industry is aware of it, but hopefully um, some demand issues will come into play where water becomes scarce and something like that. Um, quinoa is my current hate. Um, you know, these things happen. People have fashions, diets, hates. Um, it's, yeah, it's really bad. It's one of the things that I do. If it, if it doesn't come from this continent, I'm not buying it. Um, quinoa doesn't come from this continent. I don't buy it. I hate that I see it as the healthy option shown everywhere because, as you said, it does make it difficult for other people to do. And um, just touching on the question around technology, is technology going to answer the solution? The summary of, um, of Duncan's answer is uh, Jarrett Diamond's book called Collapse. Very good book. Um, but, yeah, I think technology has a, l a lot of room to play. We already have a two-track system where technology is going to solve some of the problems. It's just it might not do it fast enough before we run out of soil in which to try them on. And on that um, interesting note, um, let me just thank the, the panelists uh, for a very interesting panel, uh, Food Policy Ethics uh, for Your Kitchen and Beyond. And thank you all again for coming. <laughs>